Welcome to the Ask the 401k Experts podcast, where you get strategies, resources, and best practices for growing a successful and compliant 401k practice. And now, here's your host, Sharon Pivarato. Today, I'm back with Corey Clark of Dowbar, and he is answering questions about a different service that they offer 401k advisors around fee benchmarking. So let's dive right in. One of the things that you pointed out to me and that I was able to see on the website was something that you offer that I didn't know you had offered before, um, and you've offered it for a while, so it's just my lack of knowledge. But this is what I find uh, advisors are also in the same situation. There's so many resources and tools out there. It's hard to know what's available to you unless somebody says, did you know we have this available to you? Um, so one of the things that I found that I, I, I want to ask some questions around is the Dalbar's certification of reasonableness. And how would you describe that to someone that's never heard of it before? Well, it's, it's a report that's meant to help plan sponsors comply with 408B2 regulations. So uh, 408B2 essentially says that you can use plan assets to pay for service providers as long as the fee that you're paying is reasonable and the services are necessary. So you can't use it to pay for unnecessary services and you can't use it to pay exorbitant amounts of in, in fees on services. So that's the fiduciary duty of, of the responsible plan fiduciary, the plan sponsor. So this is, is meant to do that. Um, but it does a lot more as well because in, in that determination of reasonableness, we, we look at a lot of things at the plan. So there's, there's a lot that can be gleaned from it that, that's over and above just the reasonableness of fees. Um, but, but ultimately the, the cornerstone of it is there's an opinion letter that comes with it that says we've examined the plan and we've found that it meets the, the, the qualifications or meets 408B2 in that the, the fees being paid are reasonable and that the services being paid for are necessary. I think that that's a huge differentiator over other fee reports or fee benchmark reports is they leave it to you to assess the information and determine as a, as a plant sponsor or as an advisor, it's up to them to review the information and determine if it's reasonable. Um, whereas the, this certification that you provide actually gives you an opinion letter, mm -hmm. right? And if it doesn't pass, it tells you what needs to change. Right. So yeah. Really interesting. That's that's how we, I mean, that's really what, what we feel is, is, is the differentiating factor is the, I mean, we know there's a lot of vendors out there that can provide benchmarking services or they, you could even go through an RFP process. And so you can get a number, but we feel very, um, very strongly about this and have since 2012 that to, to do this, there's a danger um, because what, what folks will do is they'll look at a benchmark. And half the people will be above the benchmark, half the people will be below the benchmark, and the half that are above will feel compelled to reduce their fees to meet the benchmark. Well, when that happens, the average just goes down. Now there's a new half that is above the average. They need to reduce their fees. And now you have this spiral, this uh, compression of fees, a race to the bottom is what we call it, that isn't serving the plan sponsor or the participant. Because ultimately, the, the service providers are just trying to provide the absolute lowest price that they can possibly provide and they're going to cut their service in order to do that. So we, we thought there needs to be a more sophisticated way of judging reasonableness. 
know, if I were Sharon to say, I've got a car for you to sell you $25,000, would you buy it? <laughs> Depends, right? I mean, if it was a 1991 Ford Escort, my first car ever, I would say you probably would not buy that for $25,000. But if it was a Maserati, that might be a good deal. That might be the steal of the century. So why are we treating plans any differently? Why would we just simply say, oh, a plan of this many assets should be 125 basis points, end of story. That, that's, that just doesn't, we just didn't believe in that. So this was our way of coming up with what we call a target price, adjusting that benchmark based on all the qualitative and quantitative factors that we're assessing, uh, and then coming up with a more sophisticated assessment of reasonableness that really benefits service providers that are doing a good job and, and creating and establishing more successful plans. Okay. Um, where, where is the data pulled from? Where does the comparative numbers, um, where, where do you gather that information in order to say it's reasonable or not? What are you comparing it to? Yeah, so we're actually, we are agnostic as to what benchmark should be used. Although, I mean, obviously with the caveat that it would need to be reasonable. So we, we have a default benchmark that we start with, which was um, from an ICI and, and Deloitte study that's based off of plan assets. So we, that's our starting point based on the size of the plan. Um, but that is really only the benchmark that we would start with if the plan or the, the intermediary that, that is engaged with us, uh, if they don't have a benchmark of their own. So if there was an RFP process already done and they have a particular benchmark that they want to use as their starting point, and then use our algorithms to adjust that starting point to the target price, we're okay with that. We, you know, we're not gonna force a particular uh, benchmark down, down their throat, but the, um, in most cases, they do default to the one that we use, um, which again is based on off of plan assets. Um, but one can put in any, and we're gonna make sure it's reasonable, <laughs> but as long as it's reasonable, we'll start there and we'll, and we'll uh, perform our algorithms and adjustments to arrive at our target price. Okay, and this, this service, is this offered on any plan size or is there like a, a minimum on the low end or a maximum on the high end? No, there's, there's no um, minimum. I mean, the, the, the pricing structure has minimums and maximums. So our minimum uh, price is $375. So our, our typical fee structure is one and a half basis points. If you had, uh, a $1 million plan and you paid $375, that's over that one and a half basis point. So we kind of put that as the lowest, the lowest price that we would charge to go through um, the review. And so for really small plans, it does on a basis point, um, from a basis point perspective, come out to be a little bit more. On the other side, um, with, the, with the basis point, the larger plans, that comes out to be uh, a, a larger dollar figure. All of that is, is subject to negotiation, more scale comes a, a lower price where we can, you know, we can do it for a fraction of a basis point. Um, but that that's the, the standard um, fee schedule with that max and minimum. Um, but yeah, if there was a plan with $600 in it, I don't know if it would be prudent to pay the 375 to do the review, <laughs> but in, in theory, no, there would be no, there would be no situation where we'd say, no, we won't do it. Uh, although in reality, there is a point where it makes no practical sense. <laughs> so. Great. Um, another question I had for you is, do you offer discounts if an advisor or firm wants to have you certify multiple plans? Yes, absolutely. And that's the, that's the typical arrangement. So our, our one and a half basis points is 
you know, more likely to be a, uh, you know, a one-off directly from the plan sponsor type of deal. But when we're, we're, we typically engage with an intermediary, which would be an advisor, a TPA, uh, accountants, lawyers, service providers on the plan, you know, uh, typically. And so they would be the ones that may have more plans to bring to us. So that's that's the typical scenario. In those situations, we're going to negotiate something that makes more sense. So with more more plans comes obviously greater cost savings. Uh, and, you know, and it's all about it's all about scale. So um, you know, more often that's what's happening than the the straight one and a half basis point fee schedule that that you know, we have on our brochure. But um, you know, that's where we start. But depending on all the facts and circumstances, it, it'll probably end up being something different that, uh, you know, was appropriate and makes more sense for both parties. That makes sense. Is it, is it not common? I would hope it's not common. Um, but do you see where plans sometimes don't pass and then they have to go back and change and follow the recommendations and, and request recertification? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, to some degree, you know, I'll admit, I think that there, it's a, a self-selecting group to some degree, right? If, if you really felt that there was something wrong with your plan, you would probably do something about it before you would necessarily, um, you know, come to us. So um, I would say the majority of plans pass because that, you know, just the nature of it, you know, people who have problems to sweep under the rug, don't usually go seeking third party experts, you know, unless they're trying to find, you know, they're taking remedial action. Um, so it is, I, I would say maybe 10 to 15% have failed. We've seen um, some striking changes because of it. Uh, there was one that I actually just did recently that uh, I recognized the name of the plan and knew that we had done this plan before. It was actually about a year or two prior. Um, but and then in looking, I realized that they had failed the first time. And lo and behold, there was a brand new record keeper. There was, I mean, the plan was totally different and the fees were totally different too. Um, and so that was a real striking example of how that, you know, comes in, comes into play. And we're not always privy to that. You know, we're not seeing what's happening after the fact, but we had a glimpse into it luckily because we were recertifying a year or two later, but it was a totally different plan now, um, and and it did pass the second <laughs> the second time. Uh, other times it may be a small change, maybe it's just a um, for example the the quantitative uh, I'm sorry qualitative questions that we ask. Um, one is you know what are your concerns? Do you have concerns with the plan? So a typical scenario may be that they have a a, a concern of some sort that is factored into our target price. It's, it's factored in, 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 in um, called out in our report and they take that report back to the service provider and they, they hash out whatever it was that the concern is. And based on that conversation, based on whatever it is, they feel better about their concern. So now they can re-submit um, the application and whatever it was, this issue, something was late, this or that, but they've rectified it, they feel good about it. And so now their concern went from high to low or medium, and that could somehow make, you know, make a difference. So in, in, in a case where it's a, a smaller kind of change, we'll look and we'll make a correction and they won't have to re-engage us. It'll be part of what they've already paid for. Um, in a case where they new record keeper and it's a brand new plan. I mean, at that point we're doing a full, a full new certification. So, um, 
so yeah, so it, it can it can work both ways uh, as far as how one would handle their remedial action and finally getting that clean bill of health from the report. Yeah, um, in going through that certification process, I wouldn't think it's a it's a small thing. Um, what does that that application look like? Like, what what's all required? Is it something they can just you know, electronically delegate to the record keeper to provide you the information, or is there a lot of data gathering? I would think. Um, I mean, it, it depends on the systems. I mean, I know for the ones that that have more information, more readily available to them, a lot of the information we're asking for, they they can find a way to go get it. But they might, you know, they might need to send a request to a record keeper or send a request to a TPA for for some statistics. But it is. Uh, an electronic application, we call it our plan sponsor profile. And it has uh, one, two, three, four, maybe like six or seven tabs. And so the tabs go a little something like this. One is just the basic contact information of the plan sponsor and the, um, the intermediary if there, there's somebody acting as a liaison helping with the completion of the profile. Um, basic plan information, assets, average age, number of participants, real basic stuff that should be no, no sweat to, to get. Um, we're looking for information on the designated plan investments. So we want to know what investments are being offered, um, how it's allocated or how the average participant is allocated um, in terms of um, asset classes. Um, and we will need an estimated all-in fee. So we need to be able to come up with an estimated fee that the participants are paying, which is an all-in fee. Um, the different service providers, so who's the advisor, who's the record keeper, who's providing the investment platform, custody, uh, participant services, um, so on and so forth. So we would want to know, you know, first, is this service being provided? And if so, who's the service provider? We ask for ratings and the, the quality of the service and also a rating in the value of the service, which is not as related to the provider as much as it is, you know, how much do you value the service? It's not a knock on the provider. Um, so we ask all those or more qualitative questions. Um, and then we have planned features and then upload documentation so we can kind of fill in the blanks if we, if we need to. Um, so for someone who has expertise in ERISA, it's, um, I mean, it's thorough. We're asking for a good amount of information, but for someone who, you know, a TPA who's familiar with the plans or familiar with the systems to find the information, you know, it, it shouldn't be more than an hour's worth of work to get it completed and, and, and uh, signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, and that's why we have intermediaries so often, because if it was the plan sponsor, I mean, they might be battling with looking through their 408B2 for three days trying to figure out what their all-in fee might be. <laughs> you know, so that's why it's important to have a fee disclosure expert um, sort of in the middle. That makes sense. Um, in in doing the due diligence, I'm not sure how much qualitative versus quantitative information is in there. It seems like we see so many, um, I get so many emails come through with headlines about if this is fee loss and not changing share classes based on the size of the plan. Um, do you look at investments and investment classes or is it more based on the other fees in the plan? Yeah, we will. Now, if, if the all-in fee was reasonable, well, then we won't, we're not going to really try to parse out, you know, what part of a fee goes to this service versus that service. And we're not making a determination of reasonableness on a service by service basis. We're making that determination as an all-in. And practically speaking, I mean, we feel like 
Department of Labor and the way that they've looked at it and the regulations, but also just the fact that for so many plans where the services are bundled, you know, how you allocate the fee to one service versus another service can be sort of arbitrary. So um, it wouldn't be until we found that it was unreasonable that then we would start to see, you know, look and see who the culprit is. So if we saw that a fee was unreasonable, the first place we're going to look most likely is at the, at the, at the um, designated investment options. And, you know, if they're in, you know, A shares, the, you know, at for, you know, 150 basis points, then, well, maybe we found our culprit, uh, and then we would call that out. But if the if the um, if the investments were a bit pricey, but other things were pretty thrifty, and at the end of the day, the participants were paying a reasonable price for a good plan, then yeah, then we wouldn't start to analyze each individual service provider, or we wouldn't necessarily scrutinize the individual investments. But once it's reasonable, well, then then it's fair game. And how long is, does it take the turnaround from the time somebody submits the information until they get that opinion letter back? Um, it's, it's about a week, assuming that we have all the information that we need. So when we're dealing with a, uh, an intermediary that has some experience and that has been filling these out, then you know, that's, that's not an issue. They submit it, it all the information's there, and um, you know, we, we run the, the, the target price through the different statistics that we have that, that's, that's automated. Um, and then uh, an analyst such as myself would, would look through it to, to try to identify the things that obviously you couldn't identify on an automated basis. Um, but all of that can happen within a week's time. So, I mean, the, the target price is calculated instantaneously. Then it's just a few days for an analyst to look over it and add their sort of their comments, their analysis to it as well. So we say about seven business days. That's uh, that's much faster than I would have assumed. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it can get more than that when we have higher volumes. You know, if if we had a huge rush of them, then then that could be the case. You know, in which case we would communicate that with the advisor, whoever it would be. But uh, for the most part, we don't usually have spikes and dips. It's kind of it's pretty consistent throughout the year. So yeah, we're able to turn things around in about a week. Okay. Um, is there anything that you would want advisors to know about um, the cert certification of reasonableness that I haven't asked you about? Well, yeah, well, I think one thing to, to keep in mind, too, is that th this could also be a good prospecting tool. I know that offline, Sharon, we talked a little bit of, uh, about like a, a report card that, that was offered um, a while back, which was a summary version of the certification of reasonableness. Um, but I don't think it would have to be that. I think just in general, we've had uh, advisors who want to get the business. They want to get that plan business. How can they get a conversation? How can they sit down with that plan sponsor uh, and, and start to make um, start to make some, some strides in, in getting a relationship with that plan sponsor? And this is a really good way to do that, um, particularly because now you're on the outside. You're, so you're, you can... Um, provide a very valuable service to the plan sponsor by being that intermediary, but also have the opportunity to have really meaningful conversations with the plan sponsor during that process. So, um, you know, I think the way it's evolved now is it's mostly providers of the plans. And I would say, you know, advisors and TPAs would be the ones most common, most commonly, but at the at the beginning, it was a lot of folks wanted to use it as a way to prospect and, and try to gain new plans. So 
I would just want to, I guess, throw that option out there for folks to think about because, um, you know, there's obviously going to be a, a lot of angst to by your clients when they reading about fee litigation and all, you know, what, what, what can I do to insulate myself? So that's a, a, a very important part of it. But from the advisor's perspective, this could be a great way to gain business as well um, for plans that you're, that you're not the advisor on. So um, just some, an, another alternative use that, um, that we have seen that I make them aware of. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, personal opinion, <laughs> what do you think, um, would you recommend an advisor um, sell it as kind of an a la carte service to get their foot in the door, you know, to say for $400, we can provide you with this report that'll tell you, that'll give you that documentation or let you know what you need to change, or would you say that advisors should offer it as a free prospect? Well, I, I think that they should charge because if they provide it for free, they devalue the service. Um, I, I've seen it both ways. I mean, if, if, if the plan is a you know, $100 million plan, then you don't mind spending $400 on the report. The advisor themselves you know, will pay us and, and, have it, and have it done. And then they're, they're also putting their own work into it because they have to get the 408B2s, the 404A5s, and the service agreements and, and put the pieces together. They're, they're not on the plan, they're not familiar with it. They need, they're gonna have to learn it all by, by getting the documents. So they'll have to put some work into it. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be unreasonable to not charge for it. And like I said, we have had folks that they've absorbed the cost, they've paid us directly on behalf of the plan to do it. Yeah. But I think that they're better off at least charging for their time, you know, something at least nominal. So it doesn't, you know, what we all think about free things, you know, it's, we don't value them as much. They're free. They can't be that good, right? If they're free. <laughs> so, so that would be my personal opinion, but I, again, that's, that's just me. No, I a hundred percent agree with your opinion. Sometimes it's hard to convince advisors that when they're prospecting that, that, charging for something when they're not even an advisor on the plane. Um, it's a good thing because it, it helps build that. Um, I think it builds a credibility when you say I have this valuable service, as you said, it doesn't, it doesn't then devalue the service that you're trying to offer them. And it gives them as a client. And once you've got a client, even if it's just for this fantastic report, that's extremely valuable, you've got much likelier chance of getting them as a bigger client and getting the assets as well. So, yeah, I, I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else? Uh, just that, you know, for folks who would be interested in playing the role of that intermediary, so I, I think, you know, the audience here would be advisors, but uh, you know, TPAs, as I said, attorneys uh, also um, have been involved in this as well. But we do have a, a site dedicated to that as well. It's erisafeedisclosure.com. Um, that site was developed right when the regulations came out. So there's a lot of great resources and papers. All of them are, are dated now, but they're, they're all relevant. I mean, the regulations haven't changed. This was just thoughts and feelings at the time when it was coming out and preparation still totally viable now. Um, so good resources. If, uh, advisors have clients that have expressed concern about fees or, uh, insulating themselves from litigation, um, and that's also where there's some training where one could be uh, what we call a fee disclosure expert. 
Um, so there's, it's just a self training where they would learn a little bit more about how our certification of reasonableness works and, and sort of the, some training on, on how to find the information that you might be looking for in the 408B2s, just schools them up on, on how to play that role in a more efficient manner. So if, um, you know, if one's interested, I mean, I would say first contact me, not necessarily go to the website, rather talk to you, but there's definitely, um, a lot of good information, good resources on that site. And again, that's Arissa Fee Disclosure, all one word, dot com. If you want more resources, strategies, and best practices for growing a successful 401k practice, be sure to subscribe to the Ask the Experts podcast in iTunes so you don't miss out on new ideas from future conversations. Then be sure to visit the main site, 401kbestpractices.com. When you enter your email address to join the 401k best practice community, you'll get access to my most advanced strategies and resources to grow and protect your 401k business. Again, that's 401kbestpractices.com.